Welcome to A Voice from the Hills. I'm James Warner, co-founder of Silicon Hills Wealth Management here in Austin, Texas. And our guest on today's podcast is Penny Phillips. Penny spent her career searching for success. Specifically, those traits that certain entrepreneurs and leaders have that allow them to build winning cultures and firms that succeed in all types of environments. She's founded and run a thriving consulting business. She's an executive coach. She's a frequent keynote speaker. And over the last two years, she's taken those lessons learned and all her coaching experience and and doubled down on that to build a multi-billion dollar firm of her own. So today we are pleased to welcome Penny to the podcast to talk about success as only Penny can. So please join me in welcoming Penny Phillips. James Warner is the founding partner of Silicon Hills Wealth Management and the host of A Voice from the Hills podcast. All opinions expressed by James, his co-host, and his guest are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Silicon Hills Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Silicon Hills Wealth Management may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. Good morning, Penny, and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. I kind of wanted to start with just change in general, especially how it affects uh, smaller businesses in our our industry and industries outside wealth management. Uh, Could you comment on what you're seeing in your world and how it might translate to the world at large? Sure. There are some very specific changes impacting the wealth management and financial advisory space, but there are some themes that are relevant across every industry. And I I sort of look at it right now as as these three themes. Number one, scale and customization. Everyone, regardless of industry, is trying to figure out how to deliver services to the end consumer at scale that makes each person, each customer or client feels like that service was created or delivered specifically for them. And we've seen that with, you know, the the Netflixes and Amazons of the world. Um, We've been able to use technology to deliver a service to somebody that feels like it's customized specifically for them. That's going to be an increasingly important theme in the coming years across every industry. The, The second thing I'm seeing is the changing profile, not just of the end consumer or client, but the changing profile of the the employee in the organization, and this is something we're facing a lot in our in our industry. How do we deliver services to a generation of client that looks, thinks, acts radically different from the you know baby boomer consumer of the past? And um, th- this is and it's the next gen consumer, but it's not just millennials. It's Gen Zers, it's young Gen Xers who've, number one, grown up in a um, a, a highly uh, tech-enabled world and a world where social media and community really shape the way in which they make buying decisions. Now, that second piece of that, when I talk about the changing profile of the employee, this is something that's relevant across every industry. How do we build a business where there's synergy among employees of different generations who, again, think about work and think about work-life balance radically different. So this clash of the generations, that's a theme that's present, not just with the employees in the business, but but also with the consumers. And then the final thing I'll say is it's, I think we're seeing this, especially post-pandemic, this idea that technology and artificial intelligence is impacting and changing the world that, I mean, that's not a new concept, but I think for the first time ever, businesses are recognizing that the belief system, especially small business owners, the belief systems they held about the business, right? Like we need to be present in an office or we need to, you know, be face to face with people, you know, making deals or whatever it is. The, the world has changed beyond that. And we're proving that we can do business and run businesses in a different way than we ever expected. And I think the people who are going to embrace that concept moving forward, and I say this a lot, James, and shed belief systems that are no longer serving them well as business owners are the ones 
that are going to thrive moving forward. So also just to sum it up, it's the changing consumer and employee profile, it's scale and customization. And then finally, it's this idea of doing things differently and, and using tech to enable that. And some of that you talked about, uh, I guess that really refers to culture. Um, your first generation American born in New York City. Correct. Uh, but but obviously your your Greek heritage is still very strong. <laughs> and you kind of honor that culture and that guides you. Do you find that some of these smaller businesses or just businesses in general have their own cultures? And as you're integrating them, you have to respect that culture or maybe even talk with them about how they need to modify it? It's a really great question. So I, I'll say this. Culture starts at the top. We know that, especially in, in the small business space. The founder, the, the leader, the statesman of the business has a tremendous impact on the culture of the organization. And so, I, so I'll answer it in two ways. The first way I'll say is, yes, I think it's going to become increasingly more important that we and this is an important concept, especially for the younger generation, which is why I was alluding to the different generations. It's becoming increasingly more important for us to honor each person's, each employee's individuality than ever before. And what I mean by that is if you, especially in financial services, if you worked in, you know, big corporations or you ever worked in any of the big banks, you know, what you felt or where you came from uh, it didn't really matter. De- I mean, decades ago, it was sort of a sea of sameness in the organization, and it was very, it, it was driven very much by the top. That entire model has flipped on its head. It's we as business owners in our space or outside need to be focused on the what what the client needs, what the client values, what the client's culture is. And also what our employees value and what impact they want to have. Otherwise, they're not going to stay in our organization. So I would say, yes, it's about culture and background, but but it's it's also about this idea that the younger generation of employee grew up in a world where they don't just stay at an organization for 30 years, you know, to get a pin at the end of the 30 years and then, you know, retire. They stay at organizations that make them feel valued, that make them feel a connection to a greater purpose. So this idea that we need to really tap into what's driving and motivating each person and tie that to our greater vision, that's going to be critical for firms that want to sustain and thrive over the next coming decades um, because it's, it, it's just a totally different landscape now with, with the younger employee. And so speaking of the word thrive, I mean, through your work with Thrivos, uh, you've worked with a lot of successful people, a lot of, a lot of leaders. Um, and you became kind of obsessed with, you know, why are certain leaders and certain uh, entrepreneurs just more successful than others in all different environments? Uh, throughout your uh, consulting career, what are a couple things that you take away from those people who operate those firms that just seem to win regardless of the environment? That's such a great question. And I will say what I've noticed consulting and coaching hundreds and hundreds of financial advisors, but in some cases getting to know their clients as well, in many cases are business owners. It's three things that have, that have nothing to do with industry and, and really not a whole lot to do with, technical competency in a field, meaning the best financial advisors, the most technically competent financial professionals are not necessarily the best leaders. So it's three things. It's, it's number one, I said it a couple minutes ago, the best in the business have the ability to come in every day to the business without a preconceived notion about what's going to work today versus what worked yesterday. In other words, they are very comfortable operating in the unknown. They're very comfortable with this idea that what got us here won't get us there. What worked even a quarter ago as it relates to how, let's say, we're marketing may not necessarily work moving forward. And they're very comfortable consistently and constantly shedding belief systems and behaviors that no longer serve them well. So they are 
what I call as a coach, highly coachable individuals. That's number one. The second thing is they are obsessed with this concept of making themselves less relevant over time to the business, not irrelevant, but less relevant. Meaning it doesn't mean they don't have an ego. It simply means that they recognize that they can't control everything. And I, and I would say this is the biggest hindrance to sort of that explosive growth. It's the leader of the organization who's built it from scratch has an obsession with the details. They want to be part of every single decision and they're hanging on to this idea that if I don't do it, it's not going to get done as well. Well, the best in the business, again, able to live in that discomfort, they're able to step away from that and recognize that I need to let other people fail. I need to let other people succeed in a way that's right for them. I need to let other people make decisions, even if it's not the decision I would make, because they know that that's, that, that, that's the ultimate way to, to get success is to, to create a business that can exist without you constantly being there. So that's the second thing. And then the third thing I would say is this I, concept I call relentless prospecting, and it's relevant to advisors and beyond. The, the, the best believe so deeply in what they're building and what they're doing that they have to talk about it all the time. They are a walking advertisement for their business and for their brand. And it's not because of ego or because they have you know quotas they want to fill. It's simply because they believe so deeply in either the nobility of what they're doing or the impact of what they're doing. And that's an X factor that's very, very hard to teach but the ones that embody it, those are the people that tend to be successful. And so the combination of that person who can have that relentless prospecting, I mean, they, they just wake up in the morning and they can't wait to tell people about, uh, they're almost evangelists for what they're doing, Correct. right? Um, if you pair that with the ability to pivot, then you've got two really key, if, if we're talking to entrepreneurs out there, if you could focus on those two skills, you know, build a business that you feel so good about that you can't wait to talk about it every day, but build one that you're willing to pivot off of. And you're also willing to turn over control to more and more people over time. I mean, that's almost the recipe for success. Yes. And people will listen and say, well, yeah, that sounds so of course, that's what it's so difficult to do, though. I know, you know, people tend to say that. And so there are ways in which you can coach yourself towards those two outcomes. And so what I recommend for folks that are struggling with this or, or, or want to lean in more to these two areas, the first thing I would say is train yourself to be a relentless prospector, meaning every single conversation you have in a day with any key stakeholder, whether it's a family member, a client, a prospect, um, a center of influence, find a way to talk about, not about yourself or the business, but about the value you provide. In one way or another, in every single conversation, and practice it for a week, every single conversation you have with somebody on the phone or in person, find a way to weave in a story about how you've helped somebody, what you've learned over the last two years, you know, b- being in the pandemic and post-pandemic, a, a, a win that you've shared with a client or customer, find a way to start building that confidence about consistently talking about what you do because the work and, and whatever you do is so impactful that you need to share it. So that's one thing. The piece about control, you know, I used to coach advisors on spending an isolated amount of time, whether it was a day or a week, practicing giving up control. In other words, an email, and this is a very silly, simple example, but it's one that we face a lot as leaders in this business. Like an email needs to get sent and you're dying to be the one to send it or you're dying <laughs> to be the one to craft it. Practice intentionally 
allowing someone else to do it and not reacting and start very small because this, it can be really overwhelming for people who are type A control freaks and you know want to handle every aspect of a meeting or whatever it is. It's almost like you were at our Slack channel yesterday, <laughs> Penny, I got to tell you. Listen, we've, we've, we're a team of 23 now. I mean, I, I've coming from a team of four over the course of 18 months. Imagine how I feel trying slowly but surely to sort of give up, give up control. But, you know, choosing a color palette for a, for a website, one of the top things that I see advisors, you know, and I'm sure it's across industries get hooked, hooked in on is these small little decisions. Practice intentionally pulling yourself out from a series of decisions over the course of a week and see how it feels. What you ultimately find out is that nothing detrimental happens to the business. Literally, nothing detrimental will happen to the business or clients, even if somebody makes a mistake, by the way. But you have to intentionally practice, just like with with relentless prospecting. You have to intentionally practice. And so let's talk about the other side of that, listening. Uh, in some of your recent uh, recent presentations, the one at Riskalyze in particular, uh, you talked about the importance of listening, uh, the importance of when you go into a conversation, having something in mind that you want to get out of that conversation and being really intentional about how you're listening and also be aware of ways in which you are listening, but not listening. Uh, can you give the audience kind of uh, can't give us the whole presentation, but can you give us the high points on that? I love that presentation. Yes. And, uh, you know, let me s- give context around this. And it, you're really talking about emotional intelligence skills and the ability to actively listening, not for the sake of listening, but for the sake of deriving something important from the conversation that's going to help you serve that customer or client better. This is the most important thing you can ever talk about in business in today's world. Why? Because of what I was describing earlier about the entire essentially marketing funnel being turned on its head. Meaning in our industry decades ago, the, the model was very firm centric, right? So when the commercial was when EF Hutton speaks, people listen, meaning what we say as the industry or as the corporation or as the business dictates the way in which the consumer should think about their problem and should think about the solution to that problem, firm-centric. In the age of social media and Yelp and Facebook groups and Reddit and Twitter, that model has flipped entirely on its head, meaning the client, the consumer, the customer dictates their challenge. And they dictate not just the solution, but how they want to receive the solution. And by the way, if you don't deliver it to them that way, then they're writing a review about you. They're complaining about you to their friends. And that complaint is amplified times a hundred because they're on social media. And so it is now a completely consumer centric model in every single industry. So the responsibility is on us as the professionals, business owners, to get better at simply understanding the psychographics of the client or consumer. The only way we can do that, the only way, is not just paying attention to data points and social media profiles of the people we're serving, but it's about listening intently to conversations. And so the presentation you're referring to, I talk about the importance of driving mindfulness, active listening, and empathy. And I'll give you just a a couple of ideas that are helpful anywhere, even by the way, when you're in conversations with a spouse or family member, number one, always know what you're listening for. Well, before that, know your listening hindrances. A lot of us who are in business, who are ultimately trying to sell something to somebody because at the end of the day, yes, this is a relationship business. It's always a relationship business, but we, we have an end goal. One of the important things you, most important things you can do is understand your listening hindrances when we are trying to get to an outcome, we either become very defensive listeners. So we're always listening for the objection, right? We go into a conversation prepared to combat any pushback we get from the client about price, about service, whatever it is. The other thing we tend to do is we tend to be selfish listeners. We think that 
if we hear something from a client or customer that we relate to, we immediately want to share our similar story or situation. And I, I, the extreme example of this is the one-upper. We all know a one-upper, like you were in a, you know, you were in traffic for an hour. Well, they were just in traffic for four days on a freeway somewhere and had to walk (laughs) to their house. Like it's, that is how they relate. Neither of those listening styles are conducive to really understanding the consumer at the other end of the conversation. So my recommendation for folks is practice going into conversations as objectively as possible with no bias, no preconceived notion about what you're trying to achieve or what the other person wants to achieve and start every conversation with a simple question. We've got 30 minutes together today or so happy that you're meeting with us or glad to be here. What is it that you'd really like to achieve at the end of this conversation? What role might I be able to play in helping you solve the problem? In what ways can we be helpful to you as you, you know, and so on and so forth. So always using those what or how questions while being objective to allow the other person to not just open up, but give us the information we need. Everything that we could possibly need to know about the client and how to serve them, we should get that information right from them. The last thing I'll say about being a selfish listener, remember that the way to connect deeply with people is not sharing a story that matches theirs. It's about being empathetic and curious. It's about getting them to talk more about that experience they had. And so I tell people practice instead of relating with, with similarities, practice being simply curious. What was that experience like? Gosh, how did the rest of your day go? You're in traffic for an hour. Did it set off the rest of your day? How do you get into a positive mindset when you have like a frustrating experience in the morning, be curious about their experience. And so that kind of sums up the presentation. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your background. Uh, people wouldn't know this to, if they went to one of your presentations or listened to you speak, but you did have uh, some challenges with anxiety uh, growing up. Yes, I did. And, as I was reading some of the things that you posted years ago, uh, I came across one thing that was just, I just loved it. And it was, you talked about anxiety almost as a companion and anxiety as a companion that actually helps you be empathetic. And you talked about the positive side of anxiety. I'm, I'm sure a lot of our listeners, uh, you know, suffer from anxiety. We all suffer from you know, the idea of, am I good enough? Is this presentation good enough? I've got that new promotion. Am I really, you know, do I really deserve it? I I think one thing that we can all, regardless of our backgrounds, we can all kind of uh, relate to is if it's not a constant uh, dealing with anxiety, uh, there's certainly moments that we all have that. Um, Talk to me about how you made that realization. Uh, and I, I wouldn't say that you've uh, come to peace with anxiety necessarily reading what I've read, but it looks like you've harnessed it. Uh, talk to the audience a little bit about that and and how you came to that realization. And James, wow, you're bringing up a piece I wrote for the Huffington Post actually years ago about anxiety. And I think the title of it was my best friend anxiety or something. And I've, I've never talked about that. No one's ever asked me about that piece. So this is very interesting question to me. So what I'll say is, and talk to anyone who's leading or has had success in business and especially women, imposter syndrome, anxiety, all these things tend to be present and hand in hand with the success that you know, we've had. So what I'll say is this is, you know, two books that really changed my perspective on how to harness what can be viewed as, you know, weaknesses. One was The Four Agreements, which is a fantastic book. And one is um, the book Untamed, which was a bestseller and is sort of all about accepting yourself, et cetera. You know, what I'd say is people with anxiety, and yes, I've struggled very much my whole life. It's manifested in very different ways over the course of my career and 
my, you know, as, as a youngster, it was, um, very hyper-focused on details, very obsessed with perfection. And with that comes, you drive yourself crazy, but it, <laughs> you, you also have this unbelievable drive to succeed and to do things the right way. And having challenges with yourself helps you be empathetic to the challenges of others. And what I found as a woman in financial services, which is rare, is that I I tend to pick up on things that I notice other people don't pick up on in meetings, especially in negotiations or M&A discussions, a change of tone of voice, inflection in, in the uh, inflection points in how someone's talking, body language, something that they say that I know ties to a belief system they have about themselves that might hinder the decision-making process for them. So my point is in, in being so hyper-analytical and critical of yourself, it actually gives you great insight into the way people think and operate, which not just makes you empathetic, but but helps you guide them in conversations and and you know, discussions, you know, you're never free of these challenges, I think, but I think as you get older and as you surround yourself with people who are accepting of the different ways in which you show up, it becomes easier to be delicate and compassionate with yourself, which I think is the, the sort of meaning of all of this. It's, it's the answer to all of it. It's, we're all complex beings. I think a challenge for me has always been coming from a very cultural background. Mental health was not talked about. Women had a very specific role in the family and in society. And so breaking free from that, you're constantly fighting with yourself. You're constantly fighting against what people want you to be, what they think you should be, which only further fuels the anxiety. When you get to a place of understanding and and being compassionate and gentle with yourself it makes it easier to deal with and also funnel it into, you know, drive towards building a business, like excitement. And I, I do present on stage people knowing my background, find it very interesting and ironic that I present on stage to hundreds of people knowing how much I've suffered. And (laughs) what I'll say is it does, it does make you really shine in the moments that you're supposed to, because there, there's so much, sort of pressure and analysis that has gone into preparation that you just, you just nail it. So long winded answer, but I I think a lot of people could relate. And so now you've transitioned from the consulting world to actually building a firm. I I forget how many billions of dollars you guys have under management now, but uh, talk to me about when you decided to make the journey toward journey. Yes. And how is it different coaching successful entrepreneurs and leaders and, you know, talking with those same people about possibly joining your firm? Yeah, that's, it's such a funny question. I will say it's radically different coaching versus actually building the business. And I've spent my, pretty much my whole career consulting within the financial services space or coaching and consulting fancy way to say, helping people solve problems, critical challenges in the organization and coaching. um, I define coaching as the the way like a life coach might define it, but specifically in the space. So helping people really become their best selves, draw out the answers from them. So two totally different disciplines that I've worked within for the, you know, over a decade. And what I was seeing, James, was that I was coaching advisors and then consulting them on how to build businesses within the institution they were at and then leave and do their own thing. And I felt that many of the folks who'd gone through that process with me weren't happy at the end of it, meaning they were happy that they were building a bigger business and or were leaving a big institution to go out on their own and do their own thing. But what I found was that many of them wanted to get back to the discipline that the business was built on, meaning 
they wanted to get back to being an advisor. And I have heard this over and over from advisors who work with business owner clients, whether it's a medical professional who runs a medical practice or whether it's a tradesman who now, you know, runs a larger organization. Sometimes there's this unhappiness or unfulfillment with running the, I mean, operating a business is not easy. It's the most challenging thing. And so what I was finding was that advisors didn't really like operating the business or building it. They wanted to be in charge. They wanted to have ownership, but they didn't want to actually operate it. And so their options were either to go out and hire somebody to operate it, hire like a CEO or CEO, which is a big spend, or join an organization that does that behind the scenes and allows them to be advisors, to be, to do what they love doing, which is talking to people and selling and advising and delivering wealth management services. And so I said, during the pandemic, I said, well, what if, what if I just build this paradise business that I've been coaching advisors on how to build? And I set out to do that with my four partners. We're just under $3 billion in AUM. A lot of that has to do with my partners who brought books of business to help start up this entity. We've attracted four other advisory teams, four other businesses to us, two of which we've acquired, and we're building it. And I would say the biggest it's funny because coaching advisors and consulting them, it, it, it's sort of easy as an objective party to see the gaps, to give the blueprint for how to solve problems. When you're in it, it's very different. They're, you're so tied to the outcome. You're, and again, maybe this is the anxiety talking too. You're so tied to how people are perceiving you and what your team is thinking and are they happy and are the clients happy and are, you know, or is there a better way we could be doing You're so tied to all of it because it's yours. It's very difficult to step away and make the objective decisions that the consultant or coach wants you to make. So I am finding myself having to self-coach every single day, all day in order to be the business owner that I, I know I need to be. Well, I forget who said it, but they talked about the fact that, you know, freedom isn't free Mm -hmm. and independence depends. (laughs) Uh, And I think a lot of people move, make moves for freedom and independence and they don't realize they they know what they're leaving. And And I think this is true for a lot of our retirees too. They know what they're retiring from, but they're not necessarily altogether sure what they're retiring to. And I think you gave some really good advice and we, we tend to give this same advice to any of our clients who've gone through a difficult transition, whether it's, you know, death, divorce, uh, sale of a business, what, what, whatever it happens to be, you need to give yourself some time. If if you think you're going to make this move, give yourself six months to really think through it and not necessarily, I, I think, in a very short order, you know exactly what you're leaving. But I think the question that we all have to ask before we can take that next step is what are we going to, and what are we hoping to get out of it? So when you're talking to these firms that obviously they're considering leaving their current situation in some way, shape or form, um, you're now the path that they would go to as opposed to the coach that might be motivating them to make the change. Uh, How much of this is you trying to determine whether this is the right firm to bring into your culture and how much of it is the other firm trying to determine whether you're the right destination for them to go to? That's a good question. You just said something that I want to comment on. You, Uh, this idea that we don't always know what we're going to. And you were talking about retirees. One of the most important questions you could ever ask yourself, and I say this to advisors who are leaving the big, you know, wirehouses to go independent, but it's really anybody who's breaking out on their own or building a business. It's how do I define freedom? What I found with financial advisors and professionals is they equate freedom to not having somebody telling them what to do, right? Whether it's a boss, whether it's a corporation or whatever. But what ends up happening when you're on your own building a business is that 
you don't have anybody telling you what to do, but you have to be the one to make about a thousand different decisions that you probably don't want to be making. And so it's really important to, to clarify, like, what does freedom mean? And I, I found that with advisors, for a lot of them, freedom meant working with the client, getting back to the things that motivated me about it. it had nothing to do with running a business. So, I mean, it's the, the question is important for anybody going through any sort of transition. How do I define freedom? How do I define fulfillment? What are the things that I am doing on an ongoing basis that make me feel fulfilled? So I, I, that was a really, really important point. Now I'll get back to your question, which I, of course, forgot. If you could repeat it, that would be great. <laughs> yeah, sure. So when you're in negotiations with these firms, how much of it is them buying into you or you buying into them? Yeah. So, you know, it should, would you probably be more of us figuring out if they're the best fit, but most of the time, and this is, our process is a little bit different intentionally because we want to differentiate. I've been through the M&A process with advisors as their coach and consultant, and I've seen how aggressive it is how focused it is on the buyer and not the seller or the person making the transition, let's say. And so I want to flip that on its head. So our conversations are really, I would say about neither. At the beginning, it really is about helping the advisor clarify what is it that they really want. You know, if they come to us and say, I want to be independent, I want from making this up, I want freedom, I want you know, the ability to build the business how I want. Okay. Like, what does that really mean? Like take us, you know, a day, a day or a week in your perfect life. Talk to us about the key stakeholders, your family members. How do they feel about this decision? So our conversations start out, relating to what I said a couple of minutes ago, as objective as we could possibly be knowing that, our purpose in this industry is much bigger than getting advisors to join journey. It's about getting every advisor. And in some ways the advisor is our client, right? The clients are our client too, but the advisor, our client getting the advisor to find their forever home, number one, whether that's us or somebody else. And secondly, educating the advisor on the options that exist. This is one of the problems with when, when we're firm centric, are business-centric and not consumer-centric, is that we are we want to say that we're the best versus ensuring that the client is making an informed decision. Because the client that makes an informed decision and still chooses you is staying with you for life. And so the beginning is just about this exploration and getting them to talk and getting them to explore And then we move on to like, here's table stakes for us and what are table stakes for you? And then so on and so forth. Yeah. And so as you're, as you're going through that process and you run into something that just tells you it's not going to be a fit, what role do you seem to play or what role do you feel like you play when that person hasn't found their forever home, they're still looking. Um, but you've figured out that it's just not a right, the right fit for your organization. Where does it go from there? Yeah. So I think many people can relate to this. We've gone down the process with people who from the beginning were not a great fit for, or vice versa. And I think being, I mean, we're two, we're only a two year old business, even though our book of business is, obviously uh, much older than that, but the entity itself is only two years old. So sure. new, new to, uh, you know, a new player in the space, you sort of, you're like anxious to get people excited about what you're doing and on board. And, you know, in retrospect, I mean, stopping the conversations with, with people where there wasn't a mutual fit would have probably been better. I think a lot of people can relate to that, but for us, it is about ultimately finding them a, a place to go to next. So, very upfront and anybody who, anybody who emails me, uh, any wholesalers or sales professionals, I, I immediately am very upfront with, doesn't make sense to move forward. Don't want to waste your time. We try to be very direct with folks where there isn't a mutual fit in a very, you know, kind and compassionate way with the, the added piece of, but we want to continue to support you in this discovery phase. Here are three firms that we really trust and recommend 
here are the reasons why we trust and recommend them versus others, and we're happy to do a, a personal handoff. By the way, there's no f- referral program or anything like that. We've identified the firms that we think are really ethical and good, and we will direct advisors to them. What we'll also do is we recorded a webinar, an informational webinar, where we talk to our client base, so the advisors, about the landscape of the industry broadly and how to think about options and how to think about what's the right fit for you. And we share that with everybody. And it's not a journey commercial. It is literally objective. Like, here's the industry. If you're making a decision, here is, here's how to think about that decision. And here's, you know, here are different ways in which you can approach it. And so we do our best to guide people to the next possible solution for them. And how would somebody access that content? It's on YouTube. I, I, it, I may be unlisted. It's a long one. Uh, I share it. It's called a new, I don't remember a new something, a new perspective on independence or something like that. Because if they just, if they just type in Penny Phillips, they're going to have, yeah. <laughs> have a little, they're going to have a little journey to go through all the, uh, <laughs> pardon the pun. Yeah. They're going to have a little journey to go through all the content. So, uh, but it, it's it's a fairly lengthy uh, it's a fairly lengthy video I would guess it is it's a forty five minute webinar but there I tell every business owner today in this industry or not create content create content that you can share with potential clients that you could share to not just deepen brand awareness about what you do but that can also show people real time how you help your client, your end customer make decisions. And there's a number of ways in which you can use content. You can use it promotionally. You can use it on social media. You can simply share it with the prospect. Like here's, here's something informational that'll be helpful to you. And if you have no preconceived notions about what that will lead to, in other words, you're not sending that and then obsessively emailing the next day, like, do you want to come on board with us? If you're simply allowing curiosity on your end and the other person's end to, to sort of unfold, you will find that you will have better ROI than when you're obsessed with posting something and trying to see how many likes and emails you get as a result of it. Yeah. And one of the things I've noticed, I've been privileged to talk and really develop some relationships with some of the more successful people in our industry. And it almost seems like the more successful they are, the better their ability to be real with me and the better their ability to share, you know, what's going on in their world, what they're really proud of, uh, what they're really afraid of. Uh, and I think that's a, that's a skill that is is really transcendent. So I consider you to be very successful. And so I'm going to ask you this on, on the open forum. What are you most proud of that you've done to this point? And what keeps you up at night? I very much appreciate that. I do not see myself as very successful yet, but it's a question that as many entrepreneurs can relate to, it's a question that I think about all the time. And I'm not answering a question yet, but you you get to a place, but it's related. You get to a place where you're like, I have all this stuff or all these accolades and I thought it would feel this way, but it doesn't doesn't feel like success. And so is there ever a point? I think that's sort of the conclusion we come to that it's success is not about the money. It's not about the accolades. It's about something much deeper within ourselves. That's a whole other conversation. So what am I most proud of? I'm tremendously proud of obviously this venture journey, pulling this together, launching it, having it be successful. I mean, we're around and going to be around for a long time is tremendous, but when anyone asks me that, I always think about my family and the why I'm doing this and, you know, buying a home, I'm actually in the home right now, a home for my parents to retire into is the, I could never be prouder of that. Like any, anything other than helping my family who came here, you know, really with nothing, you know, have have the the American dream in the end, that's everything to me and drives every decision I make. Um, so I would say I'm most proud of that, being able to do that for them through my work and through the successes I've had. What keeps me up at night? 
oh gosh, everything. If you have anxiety, you barely sleep. Okay. So that's the reality. I'll think about something I said in the fourth grade that maybe upset someone. And I'm like, should I reach out to them on Facebook? And anyway, but I, real time. So maybe your biggest challenge is actually getting some sleep. You know, hundred percent. Um, but what keeps me up at night, I would say is I am really, for me, success is again, less about the assets under management and revenue, although my CFO would disagree and more about people's satisfaction and fulfillment in what we're doing. And that's not just the clients, meaning the end investor, that's the advisors who have trusted us with their business. And that is our team members. So the things that keep me up at night is really like, is everyone okay? Is everyone engaged? Is everyone feeling like this is a place that makes them happy? And I think when you're obsessed with that, and again, this is where the female and the empathy thing come into play. When you're obsessed with that, I think it it leads you to make good decisions and it it leads you to be very, very in tune with what people need from you in order to feel good and happy. And so other people's feelings, I guess, keep me up at night as the moral of the story. Well, well, I think the good news is in, in my limited interactions, your, your reputation is, uh, is one that you should be really proud of. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. And it's, it's obviously a, a compendium of all the interactions you've had throughout your career. Uh, and that's just something you build over time. It never ends. It never starts. It never stops. Uh, but I can tell you that wherever you've come to, uh, the outside opinion is, is really strong. Thank you. That's so let's talk about going home. You actually got to go, uh, go back to your, your parents, uh, homeland last August, right? That's was right. That- I go every year. We all make the, I mean, anyone in the Northeast, I would say. It's, we tend to go back, like the Greek Greek Americans in New York and New Jersey and Connecticut tend to go every year. And so we do, My uh, we have a home in Sparta. That's where my mom was actually born. And so, yes, I was there. Feels like forever. So there's, a, there's an annual celebration and it's, uh, it's, I guess, centered around hope. Is that a, is, is that a fair description of it? It is. The, it's August 15th, I think is what you're referring to. And it is a uh-huh. national holiday. It's a religious holiday and it's celebrating the Virgin Mary. And it's really just a day where everybody party. They go, we go to church and then we just party with our family and in, in the village. It's such an, it's an amazing experience, by the way. It's incredible. And one of the experiences there is getting to be with your extended family all in one spot, yeah. right? How would you say their opinion of you and your career has changed over time? Wow. Because our family can tend, tend to be the hardest on us or maybe the people that don't understand what we're doing the most. <laughs> is that is that the case for you or is it a little different? They have no idea what I do. They have never <laughs> had any idea what I do and they never will. Um, I obviously I'm very tight. Well, good. Don't let them watch Ozark <laughs> then. That'll, that'll, give them the, yeah, that'll give them the total wrong idea. Very tight knit Greek family, big fat Greek, everything. I mean, my father is a character. He's 70 years old, doesn't own a cell phone, never owned a cell phone. Just, he's always at the shop. He owns a mom and pop music store. It's at the shop or at the house. And yeah, no clue what I do. You, you, I think my family, they, I struggled with them. It just, I mean, not literally, but I, I had a hard time finding my place in the family and just sort of in the greater world in my twenties when, or even before that, they didn't want me to go away to school. Um, I defied them. I mean, I went to school in New York city, but I, I spent some time in London at the London school of economics. They were horrified. I mean, it's hilarious to think about <laughs> full scholarship to LSC and they were devastated and crying every day. Like it was dramatic. And then going into business and they would, you know, they didn't want me to do that. They, they didn't, they felt that it was too tough out there. And, you know, so it was, it was sort of always fighting them. And I think eventually they, recognize that, that, you know, I was destined to, to, I guess, do, do this or do something in, in this industry. And so they've, they've let up a little bit, but it's, it's always a battle. I mean, I know they would love for me to be married with kids and, you know, all that will come, but, um, right. I think they just view me as 
this sort of weird being. Well, I mean, I think that's especially a challenge for, uh, for females, but it's, you know, all of our families set up these guardrails based on their, based on their past experiences. And the thing that's always tough about it is it's always done with, or most of the time it's done with the best of intentions. So true. And so it's, it's really hard to break through those guardrails and at the same time, you know, go back and honor your roots. So it's, it's nice that you're able to do that. I know it's a, that's a tough line to walk and it's probably, there's not a day that goes by that there's not a little bit of conflict there, but Every day, uh, I, you know, I guess that's what uh, that's what makes this interesting. If it was easy, everybody do it. It's right. And listen, I've had a lot of therapy, and I've had a lot of coaching, and I believe very much in self work and development, and understanding yourself and understanding others. And when you get to a place where you really understand people and even your family and why they say certain things or do certain things, it it does make you a better, more empathetic leader in all aspects of life. So I do recommend especially for women, get the support system that you need to sift through all of this pressure that family and society puts on you. And so just for our audience, before we wrap it up, I just want to make sure that everybody knows that uh, the amount of content and the expert advice that Penny's given over the years is, uh, gosh, you could probably devote a week and not, not go through it all. Uh, if you really have the motivation to make yourself better, if you really want to learn more about uh, practice management, if you just you know really want somebody who's been on the ground floor, worked with people that are very successful, built their own successful firms, who is willing to share that knowledge with the rest of the universe. I'm lucky to be talking to her right now and just type in Penny Phillips anywhere on the internet, sit down, you know, pour a big cup of coffee. And, uh, I think you'll be uh, pleasantly surprised. So Penny, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, really appreciate your time. Anytime. I really appreciate you. And that's a wrap for this episode of a voice from the Hills podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And just a reminder that for access to this episode and all prior episodes, you can follow a voice from the Hills podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you access your podcast content. We'd love it if you would subscribe to the pod, post a review, and give us a rating. If you'd like updates on future podcasts and all our other content, you can also follow A Voice from the Hills and Silicon Hills Wealth Management on social media. If you'd like to learn more about Silicon Hills Wealth and the services we offer, please check us out at our website at siliconhillswealth.com. And please know that your engagement and feedback is truly a gift. We can only do our best work when you are here to listen. Thank you.